Hey everyone, this podcast is part of Story Mode, the podcast network of Gamefully Unemployed. You can support us and gain access to other great exclusive podcasts at patreon.com slash gamefully unemployed. That's patreon.com slash G-A-M-E-F-U-L-L-Y unemployed, which is spelled like it sounds. Hi, hi, hello everyone. Uh, my name is David Bell. I am Jason Pargin. And, uh, geez, welcome. First of all, thank you, Jason, for being on, number one. Sure. Uh, because you came to me with this, uh, with this you, idea. Yeah, with a long list of complaints about movies as they are made right now. Like blockbuster movies, these are trends that, up to the minute, that I have grown to hate that are specific to the way these movies are made. And we have many, many, many examples that will span across multiple episodes of podcast. Yes. This is going to be a four episode mini series, unless we decide it's more suddenly, uh, because we're not able to restrain ourselves, uh, where we just kind of go over a lot of modern problems with blockbusters uh, things that really bother us. Uh, most of this is on the writing level, but as we sort of discussed, it's not really the fault of screenwriters, too. Yeah, uh, you say as we sort of discussed, this is something that comes up in a lot of episodes, particularly the ones I'm on, that the writers in Hollywood have like the least amount of power of anyone involved in the making of these movies. That is, in fact, part of the problem. Uh, they are very much made by committee, and they are very much are giving a series of impossible directives. Like I've said on previous episodes, whoever had to write the final Star Wars movie had an impossible task. <laughs> yes. Because it is not a case where if you, at home, if you think that movies are made by some guy sitting down and pounding out a script, and then it gets handed to a director and they say, let's make this script. There are some movies that are made like that. Blockbusters are not made like that. Right. And yeah, that's something I want to clarify. Yeah, we are just talking about major blockbusters. And even successful ones, even ones that I like, will have a lot of these problems that we're going to go through. Uh, It's nobody, it doesn't really feel like it's anybody's fault. in the uh, like at the end of the day like this is something that spans the genre uh and i think it's the result of a the way just the way these movies are made now uh this was so yeah you came to me with this and we started a doc and we sectioned it off and today we're going to be talking about um characters issues with the characters themselves dialogue problems that a lot of movies kind of run into this was both a extremely fun thing to research and extremely overwhelming because there, it, you, you don't want to forget a thing and there's just so many things so many movies that uh that have these problems uh to to did you watch anything to prep for this I really didn't have to. I, I generally <laughs> was going off of what I knew just from my my memory. Um, 
but we are going to try to keep these recent. If you have not seen, for example, The Tomorrow War on Amazon Prime, if you have not seen Black Widow yet, we will be getting into mild spoilers, I guess. Yeah, there's. I think there'll be definitely spoilers throughout uh, Army of the Dead. Um, I don't know, Ready Player One, random, random modern movies. Yeah, and uh, again, these a lot of these are tropes that's always existed. It just feels like they're getting a lot worse now. I uh, this morning I watched um, the the last Star Wars movie, not necessarily for research, just to like get angry, <laughs> just to like get pumped for this. Uh, because that is, that is probably the most frustrating example of a lot of what we're going to be talking about. Uh, should we just go down the list? Should we just sure. start looking at, uh, what we have here? Absolutely. I guess, how, how are we classifying these? Like, are these mistakes? Are these sins of this, of screenwriting? Or are these just like issues that we they run into along the way how would you how would you uh i believe this? these are objectively like wrong ways to tell a story i think these are fundamentally okay. I, I personally again you know anyone who disagrees you can record your own podcast but for example our first example on here is the thing you see and you see it particularly in marvel movies you also see it in the new star wars trilogy which is that they seem to have some kind of a directive where you cannot have too much either tension or sadness without a joke that undercuts. Yes. Like they are afraid at the highest level they have determined you cannot let the audience get too sad. So if there's a scene that is too tense, that is too scary, that is too tragic, you've got to have a glib little bit of something either a line or a bit of slapstick or something right and it sometimes works uh i would say there's good examples of this like thor ragnarok uh where you, you set as like if you have a specific tone that works for it but like that is a most, comedy though yeah i was gonna say most of the time it just undercuts it yeah you're right that is a comedy whereas a lot of these movies like um black widow they kind of want to be everything i feel like that's a big problem with it um black widow uh recently really pissed me off because did you see black widow i assume you did for the sake of this the ending credit scene where they're over her grave and um that is a, a huge spoiler. Well, I guess it's not a spoiler that she no, dies it's not. because it's she not. died several movies ago. Uh, so no, that's it's the, not the a spoiler. End, it's yeah, yeah. The Sorry. end credits because as if, if people who are just vaguely aware of Black Widow are like, well, how they bring her back to life? Well, it's, it's a prequel. It, it takes place in between which two movies? Civil it takes War place and what? Uh, and Infinity War, I believe. Yeah, because she at the end she's like, now to go off and fight thanos uh and she gets in that ship to go die and it's like yay so it has a post-credit scene there's a couple examples of this has a post-credit scene where they are visiting her grave and then elaine from seinfeld shows up and just like blows her nose comically and does this whole bit uh and it really undermines you know, the fact that this is a major character who is dead. And it's something about the way they don't trust the audience to sit with 
yeah. emotions, I guess. It, there's a thing like in, uh, I think it's Age of Ultron, you know, this character, Black Widow, Natasha, is it Romanoff? Is that what his name? Yeah, um, Natasha Romanoff. She gives like this monologue about how when she was raised in this, uh, uh, you know, this assassin school, they sterilized all these girls. And in Black Widow, they make a comedy bit out of Florence Pugh describing that process. Oh, yeah. To David Harbour's character. And it's a joke because they decided at that point in the script, it had been too long since there was a laugh. Even though this movie is not a comedy. There's no, I can't fathom a single member of the audience sitting there thinking, man, it's been a long time since I've laughed. The way you would you would if you were watching like Anchorman and it got really dramatic for twenty five minutes, you'd be like, "This is weird." Mm-hmm. In a Marvel movie, you know, th- these are people in a serious situation. There are actual stakes, and you know, again, it, this type of like glib comedy beat goes back forever. You can find many of them in Indiana Indiana Jones, you know, where he shoots the guy in the street that's played as slapstick, whatever. But when it comes time for them to be tense they're allowed to be tense. And when it comes time for them to be scared, they're allowed to be scared. There's not this pressure that like, man, we haven't had a laugh in, in a yeah. couple minutes here. Like we got to end. I, I do not understand that mandate. I personally, one of my unpopular movie opinions is that the reason I did not like the middle star Wars movie, the last Jedi is I didn't like the comedy beats. The, it, the early on, you have this thing where Finn wakes up and he's got like this suit with water squirting out of it, and it's like this wacky slapstick thing. It's like, why? Here's, it, it, yeah, I think okay. As you pointed out, it's not like blockbusters didn't have comedy in them before. I think, I think the reason why, for example, that didn't sit with you, or why a lot of these don't work, is because they don't plan. They don't shape the comedy around the characters. Indiana Jones shooting a guy because he's uh, doesn't want to be in a sword fight is a very Indiana Jones thing to do, right? Uh, Indiana Jones doesn't stop and comment on how wacky what he's doing is. Um, uh, 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 my favorite example is like Ian Malcolm in Jurassic Park. He's a chaos mathematician. Uh, he's eccentric, and that informs the comedy that comes from him. It makes him funny in a very specific way. Whereas now you look at like the new Jurassic worlds, they'll just sort of get a comedian and say, all right, make jokes, just make, just make jokes. Everybody is kind of, it's like the humor is all the same. You know what I mean? And I think with Marvel, it, it went wrong because it worked so well at first. Um, you have like Joss Wheaton's like kind of meta humor that shows up in Avengers and people love that, even though that kind of went stale and then you have stuff like Taika Watiti and, and, and James Gunn, who are very good at understanding that balance. And it works really well, but then that all translates to stuff like Black Widow or the new Star Wars, where they're not really written by people who understand that balance. And it's just like, but we have to make it also funny. And, and as you're pointing out, like, why? Why does, it have to, why does Black Widow have to have moments where they stop and do jokes? especially when the jokes don't necessarily feel like they belong to those characters and it, and it takes you out of the movie ultimately. Yeah. And it seems to be, I've believed for a long time that Marvel and I don't know if this comes directly down from Disney, but that they just have this, uh, 
theory that every moment has to be delightful somehow. Right. Like it can't be, it, it can't be a thing like, well, we're building and building and building tension for this to happen. It's got to be like, no, no, no. Every cut, cut right to, I just want punchline, punchline, punchline. I don't want the right. setup part. And it's like, that's misunderstanding how audiences interact with movies. And again, I realize that makes me sound very naive that I think that, you know, these people have made a hundred billion dollars off their franchise. Don't know what audiences want. Yes. I do understand that part of this is that they think when they're selling these movies overseas, that they translate better. If there's like slapstick or things that don't require you to read subtitles. I know there are external factors that, that force a lot of this stuff, but it doesn't change the fact that like you can watch, you know, the a movie like Titanic, which at one time was the most successful movie ever made. And the idea that you can watch that and think the audiences refuse to ever be sad in a movie or that they can't tolerate tension or being too scared. Like that movie does not let up. It, it's no, there's it like really a solid doesn't a solid hour of people screaming in the water as they drown one by one. It does not hold back. And it shows you people dying. It shows you people being terrified and it goes long stretches without a comedy beat. It does. They don't admit it has them. You know, it has comedy beats because real life has them. You know, it's the, the main character Jack is this very jocular, you know, the free spirit. But once things get scary, he stops joking. Because he wouldn't be joking in that situation because he doesn't know he's in a movie. He's on a sinking boat. And I feel like the Marvel movies, there's this thing and Disney in general. I think the Disney animated remakes probably do this to an extent where it's like we can't let the audience forget they're watching a movie and that this is all like it's not really there's no real stakes here. We're not really sad about this death because there's just something somebody's going to fart or whatever. I get the instinct because superhero movies are silly and they want to be in on that joke. And I always wonder, like, did, do you think cracked stuff like cracked caused part of this? Cause it used to be that movies took themselves somewhat seriously. And on the internet, people would make fun of them. Uh, and, and like make fun of the obvious, like absurdities of those movies. And now it feels like the movies are trying to get ahead of that and be like, yeah, check out how absurd what we're doing is. You know, it's all, it's, it, there's, they don't want us to feel, it's, it's like to, to not joke feels like they're lame or something where they're like, no, we want to be in on it. Whereas it's kind of why I appreciate for better or worse, Christopher Nolan films, because boy, does he not do that. (laughs) Uh, And sometimes it's really, it, it is actually kind of bad, but at least he takes his crazy, bullshit world completely seriously uh and i don't know i think some of these series have earned that you know black widow uh considering this is the last film of that character earned the right to be serious and should have ended on a more serious note right and Uh, i can't fathom fans being mad that they let that they let an emotional moment just play yeah it's like, well, no, this movie was de- was depressing. I don't think I don't think the viewers think that way. I I, I mean, the, the only Star Wars movies, uh, st- people who are fans of Star Wars only like one movie, which is Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> there's 
Right. <laughs> the most passionate Star Wars fans only like 12% of the movies they've ever made or, or whatever the, the number is. Um, and that's a movie that is a has you know long stretches of just nothing but defeat but it's very powerful and it's you know you still have the the moments where han solo can be glib and all that but in the end it's it ends with this very long tense sad sequence where luke skywalker skywalker's entire world falls apart and they don't feel the need to insert like some little slapstick beat or something it's like oh don't worry you won't we're not going to be too hard on your emotions here. It's like, no, we can handle it. I, I, I was like, you know, eight years old when I saw it. I, I could handle yeah. it. it. It was, uh, you know, it was fine. It's, it's people like to feel things, but you have to let them actually feel it. Like the catharsis doesn't mean anything unless they've actually felt the tension. Right. It, we, we want nothing more than to feel for like, you know, a talking tree. Uh, and that's why James Gunn kind of succeeds at this because he knows when to kind of move to like bittersweet. Like he still, uh, he still has this problem with say villains. Like what's his name? Ronan in the first guardians, uh, the ending where it's just like uh, star Lord dancing. Uh, and it kind of undercuts the tension of that sequence. Like it's still not perfect, but it really, it, I guess those are bad examples because, as you said, they're kind of more comedies first. They uh, established that tone very, very early. Like yeah. the first thing you see in Guardians is him like picking up a, a lizard and singing into it like a microphone. Right. Like they intentionally go out of the way from the start to say, and the same thing with Thor Ragnarok. Like it starts it, right. with the first f- few frames. It's like, okay, this is a this is now a goofy universe for the next couple right. of hours. I and do that's think. Okay. Yeah, I do think it still goes back to the fact that all the jokes in those are based around those characters. Like, I think the thing we're really we're really getting at um, is uh, uh, like the Tomorrow War, where they just take a comedian and they say, "Here, sit here, and when we have a second, can you make some jokes?" Uh, where it's so like again, Jurassic World one and two, both of them have these like nerd characters that make like meta jokes. Uh, and aren't really don't really need to be there and are like like kind of insulting millennial stereotypes you know what i mean and i wonder if it comes it all goes back to judd abatow who like never intended this to happen but his style of comedy kind of spread right it kind of went viral uh and for a while all comedies were like that and by that i mean comedians kind of improvising their lines like where everything just kind of stops and people just make jokes, and then the movie continues. Uh, anybody which, who, who had like the DVDs of the forty-year-old virgin or uh, Anchorman or whatever, they'll see that in some of these scenes, they just did thirty-five takes where they let the actor right. just improvise different punchlines, and then in the edit, they just keep the ones they like. Which for a comedy, which is not based on like forward momentum or conveying any kind of complex plot stuff. It's fine. It, like you can cobble together a hilarious movie that way. Yeah. You set, you set the camera in one spot and you let Will Ferrell sit there on the couch in his ridiculous costume and just let him do 20 versions of that joke until you get one you like. That's fine. Then like the first Iron Man movie famously did not have a finished screenplay when they started they had like the talking scenes they just had a framework and robert downey jr and you can tell he's improvising in a lot of it oh, and yeah. it seems like that 
that, that they could shoot these in that Apatow style, I think is misguided because in a movie, in, we referenced the Tomorrow War. Because of the way that movie was released as an Amazon Prime movie, I have no idea if everyone in our audience has seen it or if literally no one has seen it. <laughs> well, they're making a sequel. Does that make you feel better or worse? <laughs> yeah, some, they, their metrics must show that somebody yeah. watched it. It's For those of you who that title doesn't mean anything because you don't have Amazon Prime, it is a blockbuster science fiction action movie released on Amazon only starring Chris Pratt and Sam Richardson uh, and some other people. And a, a very bad movie, I thought. Um, but one thing that they did is that it has basically the entire comedy is they had Sam Richardson just basically ad lib. And he says this in interviews, like they just gave him freedom to just yeah. talk. So there are these sections where you as the audience are like learning that the world is about to be doomed by this apocalypse of these aliens that have taken over Earth and they have reached back in time via time travel to grab a bunch of soldiers to bring them up to the future to fight the aliens. Um, and then while they're like getting this briefing, Sam Richardson's like, like starts riffing and doing and doing his bits. Now, again, this is nothing. I, I love him. I, I, I want him to, to be successful in everything he does, but they're giving him an impossible task where it's like somebody right. decided, well, the audience can't be scared here. Because that's a negative emotion. So when they're in this briefing hearing about how they're going to have to go to the future and fight these aliens and they're probably all going to immediately die, we need you to give us some comedy there. We need you to riff for a while. And the movie right. just stops for a, a moment while he does it. And, and it, that happens multiple times. There's a – yeah, The Tomorrow War is a, a perfect example of a lot of problems. It's such a – it's one of the most transparent films uh of recent i uh, like it's it's you can you can really like sense the desperation of everybody working on that movie hoping that it'll for some reason be a hit which apparently it is um but there are good ways of doing this i think of like the spider-man movies where they made the teachers all kind of comedians and gave them what felt like freedom to improvise in those moments like if if you can section it off and say, okay, this part of the script, you can do that. But that's not what they did in the tomorrow war. Uh, it really did felt like they just had them riff in every scene and then tried to figure out where they could cram in the jokes. Uh, and because the jokes are so totally different, it doesn't work as opposed to something like, um, uh, uh, Bill Paxton in, uh, aliens, uh, as, uh, as Hicks. Is that his character's name in that? I always get him confused. No, with he Hudson. was Hudson. He's Hudson. Uh, Michael Bean is Hicks. Got it. Uh, where like he's funny even when it's they're scared because his character is just a funny type of character. Like there's ways to do that, uh, and it 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 just feels like they don't since they don't write the jokes in advance. It's just so clumsy half the time. Uh, the Ghostbusters remake is another one where like the first ghostbusters th there is improv in the first ghostbusters the original but they like they still wrote jokes you know and got them like there's still there's still a structure in that screenplay uh and th that was kind of when you like that was that was the movie for me that made me realize the jed abatow system was like spreading 
Which, again, not his fault. It's a good idea for comedies, but not all comedies. Especially when it's, like, um, a high-concept comedy like that. You know, like, Edgar Wright nails it because he doesn't allow stuff like that. He sticks to the script because he's making zombie movies or sci-fi and stuff like that. And I think the moment you start going into other genres like that, you you kind of have to plan out your jokes a little more. And then this is the extreme of it. These movies like Jurassic World or like Bloodshot, I think also has the, the funny guy character who they just, I think he's in the fan and they just cut back to him whenever they need to. And he's just doing some sort of improv joke and then they cut away and that's it. What is, and it really what feels is like bloodshot. Is do that you not remember bloodshot? Who was in it? Vin Diesel. Oh man. You would love bloodshot. <laughs> if you haven't seen bloodshot, Vin Diesel as a superhero, it's a comic book character. Christ, um, I missed that completely. Yeah. He has nanobots in his blood that heals him. <laughs> Why is it? It's, okay, no, I'm sorry. We're getting off track. We've got too much to cover. I'm sorry. I apologize <laughs> for doing that. But I, this is where what, what David just said, I want to stop and make note of this because I mentioned earlier that I don't right. feel like some of this is opinion. This is something, when you have a high concept movie like Ghostbusters or Tomorrow War, at, on a mechanical level, there is a tremendous amount of information that has to be transmitted to the audience in order for them to feel fear or tension or whatever later. It's a high-concept movie. Like, Anchorman is not a high-concept movie. You know, 40-Year-Old Virgin is not a high-concept movie. When you have a movie where you have to explain a lot of complex things about the universe, that has to be more tightly scripted by design. Because So if you're going to work in the jokes, like if you want this big punchline where they accidentally summon this ridiculous like food mascot and the Stave Puff Marshmallow Man... Like that is set up through the movie, you know, and so and then so like when that happens, it's earned. Like they earned that big stupid moment because it, it, like they carefully balanced this tone, but it's built in. It's not a throwaway thing. Whereas if you just let the characters like riff on what somebody looks like or riff on you know on, on how hunky Chris Hemsworth is or whatever, you're kind of just stopping the movie and and again you say well yeah but this is a comedy but it's a comedy where if you're doing like a sci-fi action movie you have to be careful about how you parcel that stuff out you've made your challenge much much harder and i would argue that the tomorrow war didn't need a bunch of comedy at all like it can just be an action Mm sci-fi action movie it's it's you know let let Chris Pratt's charm or whatever carry it. Right. Yeah. I mean, that had a lot of problems, but yeah. If I, we're I, going to mention yeah. it in multiple times in this uh, podcast, including the very next section. Yeah. Should we get into the next section? We yes. probably need to keep moving. Uh, all right. Next. next <laughs> yeah. Next we did one. almost half an hour on that. <laughs> oh, <laughs> good <point>. God. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be. Oh, this is going to be so long. It's okay. I'm fine with that. Uh, All right. So the next one we want to talk about is character flaws, specifically having them occur not in the movie, but being told about them, having them occur off screen. Uh, You you mentioned uh, the Tomorrow War. That's That's a big one because Chris Pratt, 
we learn that he's later going to abandon his family. Uh, we never see anything on screen that indicates that he would do that. No. In the movie, again, for those who have not seen it, just to create a, uh, an image in your head, Chris Pratt plays a genius scientist and an incredibly like buff, muscular super soldier, loyal patriot, ultra-competent, everything he does, loving father and great husband who has a great relationship with literally everyone in his life except for his father, and it's because his father is, a, is an unspecified dick. Right. He travels into the future and meets his grown-up daughter in the future. And then she tells him, well, in the future, you're, you're dead. Like, you actually die. And again, this is spoiler. In the future, like, you, you die just seven years after what is your present. And he's like, but how? And she's like, oh, you abandoned us. You abandoned my, my mother and me. And he's like, well, I would never do that. There, we don't like cut to a scene where we see it. We don't get anything. It's just her telling him. And then this is supposed to count for like at the end of the movie, his arc is that he overcomes the dick that he apparently was in a part of the movie that we were not allowed to view. And we're right. supposed to feel something like, oh, he overcame. He's not a. Uh, it's like, well, yeah, in an alternate timeline, you're a piece of shit. It's like, right? oh, okay, well, I'm glad we resolved that. <laughs> we also, since we're being told this, I was always thinking like, well, there's a lot of complicated reasons people get divorces. So maybe like this, his daughter didn't get the whole story. Like we don't know because they don't show us. And when they show him and his wife at the beginning, they're perfectly happy. He he's bas- he's just fed up with like they show him like bombing a job interview um which is the same thing they do in Infinite another movie that does this which is like they sit the character down and someone tells them what their past was and and tells us you know uh because they don't know how to actually show it so like there's no indication whatsoever that Chris Pratt has like they could have easily had him having a fight with his wife in that opening scene. Uh, I don't know why they didn't do that, to be honest. But um, I personally believe that's Chris Pratt not wanting to be. And we've got a few examples here of where I think they're scared. Again, this yeah. is fundamentally misunderstanding how audiences work. They're scared that we won't forgive a person for having any kind of a flaw. Right. What's amazing is that there's another time travel movie that nails this, and that's Back to the Future. Everybody keeps telling Marty, you s- it's an off-screen thing at first, which is, oh, he can't back down when someone calls him chicken, uh, and eventually he's going to crash his car and send him into debt. Um, he's going to hit a Ro- Rolls Royce, and then we finally see him avoid that at the end, but throughout the movie, he keeps throughout the series people keep calling him chicken and he keeps having to do what they say so we see the flaw throughout that we know is going to lead to this thing they could have easily put that in this where chris pratt's character um is like hot tempered or something like that you know where you see hints of it but they don't they they absolutely don't he's he's a perfectly charming guy who apparently is going to become a dick later and Black Widow, they kind of did the same thing. We like I did an episode on the 
the straight to I think HBO Max movie Those Who Wish Me Dead and the Angelina oh, yeah. Jolie action movie, which I'm confident most people probably never watched. But they did the same thing where it's like where she feels haunted by the death of a child or children. And then when you see it, it's clearly not her fault or not to the degree that uh, it's. Yeah. They don't. It's like it wasn't really her decision. It's one of those things where in Black Widow. It's like, oh, shouldn't this have been a thing we established with her character a long time ago? But because they only just thought it up, it's, you know, it just shows up in this film. And they do it to have to set up a villain later that we don't really have a connection to because we only just learned about this child that she sort of caused the death of, but didn't actually. Well, right, because it's, well, it's spoiler, it's going to turn out yeah. she's alive, but it, it's the same thing where it's it's like, well, we can't, I mean, this person literally was raised as an, as an assassin, but we can't, you know, it, you want all of, like, the pathos of this person having a dark past, but you don't really want it to be that dark. And even yes. in the first Suicide Squad movie, which famously opens with... Uh, I can't remember the name of the character who's the lead of the Suicide Squad who's putting it together, and she's like going through their files, and then it cuts to a series of like character trailers for each of them. And the whole thing with like oh, Harley, yeah. who they were clearly launching Harley Quinn as like the, her own you know franchise character, and it's like you know she's crazier than the Joker and even more dangerous. But then when it cuts to them. It's like in the Joker's Lamborghini and he's driving too fast and she's like begging him to stop because he's right. going to drive them off into the ocean or something. It's like, well, what you actually see of her. And then when you watch her in the movie, she's because, again, they can't make us hate her. So she's just mildly crazy. Right. Like she, she wears like revealing clothing and dyes her hair a funny color. And like when she's in the jail, she like licks the bars and stuff, stuff like that. But it's. I know people that do that. <laughs> it's if you're going to tell me she's even scarier than the Joker, it's like I get you wanted that line in the movie and you want to build her up, but there is nothing we actually see her do that yeah. rises anywhere close to that because of course they're they're afraid that even though it's literally the premise is Suicide Squad, these are supervillains. It's like, well, yeah, if she's a villain, everybody will hate her. Like, okay. It's the the Hannibal TV series spawned, you know, an ocean of like fan fiction of erotic fan fiction with Hannibal and Will Graham sure. having sex with each other. But but yeah, go ahead and tell me that audiences can't handle like any darkness in their <laughs> characters at all. That's definitely OK. I, I want to tie this into something we we're going to talk about later, which is the lack of bad guys, um, the constant redemption arcs, because the Internet, I think, has made this worse is that like Hannibal Lecter is a great example where it's like he's not he's not a good guy he you know in the originals but we just like him the same way we like something like Darth Vader where it's like there's a sort of a fan base around them um Darth Vader probably started this problem cuz Darth Vader has a redemption arc written into him but at the time that was meant to be surprising now i just feel like like whenever you watch a fast and furious movie and they're like it's Dom's brother, and he's the villain. It's like, no, he's not. Of course he's not. Like, the, the Fast and Furious is constantly, constantly 
give redeeming arcs to villains. We now have the Loki show where like you compare Loki now to Loki back in, you know, the Avengers, he's a straight up villain. Um the 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 Raptors in Jurassic World, like it's this weird idea of like because there's fans of the villains, they want to make them good too. Uh and yeah, the the, the idea of a like a flawed hero is like almost impossible now for that reason. Yeah. And like the inexplicable decision to make a Cruella movie. I struggle to say that name, but mainly because it's not, it's not a real name, but (laughs) that's, it's like, because they found that character compelling, that must mean they want to see more of that. And so they have to do uh, the opposite of a heel turn. They have to do a face turn. They have to become a good guy. But it's like, well, but why, why why does you know why does the next the star wars prequel why does it have to start off with anakin being one of the heroes it's right. because we found darth vader compelling which mainly is because of that suit and the noise he made and it makes for a cool toy it's like even george lucas is is like no they want to see more of darth vader let's make the, the prequel about him and it's like well yeah but he was that whole story was told this is not the interesting part of this universe is how did darth vader become darth vader it's like who cares what that that's not that was why that was flawed from the start and the same thing it's like well how did cruella get why how did her hair wind up like that how did she how did she wind up being obsessed with having a fur coat and and wanting to skin these dogs like no one on earth asked that question no one right if people watched that movie and found the villain you know like disney villains disney cartoon villains are great they're over the top, like they're they're stylish and they're flamboyant, and that's you know. And then the Little Mermaid and Ursula, like she's great. Everything about her her manner and that, but she loves being a villain. She she loves being evil. That's that's great. That, that you don't need to. It's like well, no, let's go back and see her as a child and understand how she got like that. It's right. like you don't have to have that. You can just you can just have somebody. You know, their role in the story is to be is to be the the evil one. Yeah, we got, we definitely got off track here. Do we want to talk about that that Cruella problem, that issue of like going back and trying to explain things? We might as well. Yeah, because it's yeah where you're working, you're working backward basically. Again, I my argument would be that it's almost never does that movie have to be made. Period. Right. But if I, you have to make it, like if somehow you found yourself in a situation where you have to make a prequel, there's no reason you can't just make, like if they told me to make an Aliens prequel, I would say, well, fine, it, it'll be about some other ship running across that planet and then they fight against the aliens. What I would not do is try to say, okay, I've got to connect this to the movies we know. We've got to go back and figure out, like, well, what was Ripley like when she was a child, or or how did that ship get built? Or it's like, no, you don't have to. You don't have to answer those questions. But yet, every prequel that comes out, that's exactly what they're doing. It's like this fill in the blanks. And the, the solo movie was famously was famously like, well, how did he get that name? How, right. How, where did he get that vest? It's like I no think, one asked that. I think the reason this happens, uh, specifically with prequels, is because. Making a prequel is unavoidable, but almost every prequel is incredibly unnecessary because, like, movies start where they're supposed to start, you know? 
characters start where they're meant to start. So the go back, you have to have a really good reason to go back and and say, okay, let's let's start earlier. Um, and most of the time, it's they're yeah they're doing it because they can you know recast the character as a younger actor, uh, get just a little more into that property. Uh, and and most of the time, the one I'm reminded of is Prometheus and Alien Covenant. Where they're like, yeah, but where did the aliens come from? We're going to make two movies about this. And it's like, really? Because nobody cares. Nobody cares where the aliens came from. That That is not the point. Uh, in the same way, no one cares why Darth Vader is easel, e- evil or why Krilla got her name. Uh, it's just... Like I'm trying, I'm 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 actually having trouble trying to think of a prequel that was necessary. Right, because the ones that are like the the TV series Better Call Saul is a great show, and it's a prequel to, to Breaking Bad. But it also is just like, okay, what are some further adventures? This character, like, it could easily take place after they just wanted to include a lot of characters who had died, so they just that was the only like practical reason for making it as a prequel so they could have Mike and these other people that pass away in Breaking Bad. Right. But otherwise it's just, okay, let's pursue the the further adventures of Saul Goodman. And then this, the part of that show I like the least is when they, it's the 1% of the show where it's like, they have to stop and explain how he got that name or when he got that office. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't care. That, that's not, you're, you're answering questions I didn't have. Like that stuff can be incidental. It's more, it's just an excuse to spend more time with these, with yeah. these characters, but even something like those terrible, the fantastic beast movies, which are they still going ahead with the plan to do like five of those? <laughs> are those still I going think, or do they cancel that? I think as far as we know, they're still doing it. Uh, but, but like I those have movies no idea are written by JK Rowling. Like in theory, you give the author free reign to just write further adventures in that magical universe, which by the way, the magical universe is just literally the entire world at any point in history. You could tell a story that doesn't have to, even in her, and I guess it's possible the studio came back and demanded this. Those movies are just an unholy mess because yeah. they keep on top of the plots being overcomplicated and more like something you have in a novel. And they're not being like a specific point of view character. A lot of times you have them trying to force in all of this stuff to tie it back to Harry Potter. And I guess I, I get it, but like, in I think it was the second movie where they had the, the snake is it Nagini, the snake and the woman transforms oh, into yeah. the snake and she doesn't impact the plot. It, she's just in no. there. Cause it's like, well, that's the snake. That's Voldemort snake. But it's just it, like, if you were seeing that movie out of that context, it just looks like this patchwork of ideas and stuff that doesn't pay off. And it's like everything that's it, you know, I, I, you would think that the author would be the one person to be like, no, I just want to tell another story. That's got all of these same elements, but you don't, you don't get to do that. Like, I know a lot of people liked rogue one, but they still had, were saddled with this. Okay. This has to lead up right up to the opening right. scene of episode four. And it's like, man, that, that's rough and that makes it, also, it that makes it tough to structure your movie. Yeah, it also reminds us that the stakes don't matter like introducing Voldemort's snake or like in the Hobbit films they shoehorned in a lot of Lord of the Rings stuff. Um 
foreshadowing it, stuff that I believe wasn't in the book. Uh, and it just sort of reminds you, like, oh, yeah, there's that better series where, like, there was more at stake. Because um, there's definitely a problem with that, right? Like, Black Widow, what a bizarre time to do that film. Because her character, I, again, I guess spoilers, but we know, has been dead uh, for a while. And they went back and made this movie, and it feels so... It's at, at the end, her just going off, uh, like going riding into the sunset feels so hollow because we know that none of any anything we saw in this film matters. Um, it's just to squeeze out a little extra from that character. And like uh, Rogue One, I had a similar feeling, which I know a lot of people like those movies, but or that movie, but it felt like, yeah, why do we need to know how the Death Star plans got from this point to that point and i guess the point is to show how many lives were lost to just do that simple thing but in the grand scheme of star wars it just felt like a story we had we didn't need there was no it was completely unnecessary and it's not it's it comes down to a a theme that we're going to hit again and again and again which is that they're not trusting the audience yeah. It's like, this can't just be another story that takes place in a Star Wars universe. We're so scared, and I know that the prequels set this tone where it's, you know, it, it, like, it makes perfect sense from George Lucas's point of view to want to reach back into the history of the Republic and how it got that way and all that. But the moment you've set for yourself the task where, okay, this movie is literally going to end with yoda climbing into a tiny yoda sized ship and saying okay off to to dagobah i go where like it has to lead right right up to episode four and everybody has to be it's like luke has been dropped off on tatooine it's to set yourself with that task where i have to answer all of these questions nobody asked it's like well why did luke live there it's like no no one he didn't have there doesn't have to be any reason he lived there Right. Instead of just saying, look, this is going to be a different part of the galaxy. The the Empire's reach goes across the galaxy. There are people you know, of many different types and races and, and everything else. And we're just going to have, talk about a totally separate adventure. But even it, that franchise, and it had been so long since there had been any movies in it, and as eager and willing as the audience was, all of the money that people were ready to spend on it, they still were so scared that if it doesn't have Chewbacca... If it doesn't have Yoda, if it doesn't have, you know, if it doesn't directly link up to, you know, the building of the Death Star, um, then the audiences aren't going to care. Man, that shows so little faith. Right. Because, you know, those elements are things we love, like all the stuff that's there. The the idea that if you stray even one degree away from the story and that it just makes that universe seem so small. It seems like everything that's ever happened in that galaxy happened to the same 12 people. Right. This is this. There's a lot to talk about here that we'll probably talk about um, more in the next episode. But it's that idea of like, okay, we're making a continuation of this universe. Um, they don't. They don't like Star Wars. Is like that's we. There was a whole book series of extended universe stuff of just other characters existing in the universe. The universe is fascinating enough that they didn't need to continue the same characters and they are obsessed, obsessed with the Skywalker bloodline and don't think we want to see anything else around that. 
So even when Rogue One comes along and they're like, we're doing something different, it still ties into it. Uh, it's 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 very infuriating, and the way it the problem that creates for characters like Obi Wan series, which hasn't come out yet, it might be amazing, but that means that like between the prequels and the new films, they found a new thing that they can fill, right? Because that's what the Star Wars, all these new movies and shows feel like. They're just like looking at the timeline and being like, oh, there's a gap in Obi Wan right there. Well, why not fill that with something? And it creates a situation where all of these characters live these exhausting lives um, that never feel complete. You know, they never uh, they never see any rest. You know, Luke, Leia and Han, after the, the old films, apparently their lives just got worse. Uh, and that kind of sucks because they have to put them in. And therefore, it makes it makes everything worse. Chewie, we get to watch Chewie l- lose everybody he loves and knows. Uh, and then at the end of Rise of Skywalker, Maz walks up and gives him the medal from A New Hope. As if that completes his arc. And it's like, you've completely missed the point of what we want to see with this character. And that's where you had asked earlier if you thought that the internet and like pop culture commentary... It's like because it's not just like, like crank, but cinema sins and all these YouTube channels and all yeah. this stuff that where they're all about like picking out Easter eggs, where it feels like to connect to the franchise, they do these things that will like please the internet, like Chewie not getting getting the medal that he didn't get in A New Hope and little things like that. But at the same time, they didn't like. I think you mentioned that that Picard show on which streaming oh, God, service is yeah. that on? CBS. It's Paramount Plus. Paramount Plus. Yeah. Uh, the, the, they don't... The central theme and like tone of the show and the character everything else, they don't have that. But they insert all these references to like... Get it? Like where it's a reference. It, it's like you're, you're right. connecting in the wrong way. It's like you're, the central feeling that you're going for is not there, but all of this other stuff that's like forced in to connect it to TNG or whatever is, is there. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 a fundamental misunderstanding of like what fans like about a series, I feel like. Um but yeah, I think it's most I don't know, you can see it clearest in prequels for this reason. And again, I I'm still scratching my head to think of like is there a prequel that re- felt necessary? If people want to like comment and and tell me a prequel that felt truly necessary. I'd love to know. Because most of them just answer the question, how did they get this way? None of them really continue the story in any meaningful way. That was, I was so naive going into Black Widow. I thought Black Widow, that movie, was going to tell me something new about her death. You know what I mean? Like, I thought that was going to inform, like, her character and sh- explain more, like, why she chose to sacrifice herself or just like something. And it, when it became clear that it's just to set up the Hawkeye series, it became, I was, it was just so such a bummer, you know? Right. But again, that's where if, if the screenwriter goes in knowing that their task is to set up the Hawkeye series. Yeah. Yeah. What else can they do? Yeah. Like to sit here and criticize like, well, you didn't explore that character very well. I think they would say, okay, well, 
I was brought in after all of the, I was told that the movie will end with them falling out of a floating city. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I had to include that. And then I have to basically introduce Florence Pugh as the new Black Widow, and then we're setting up the Hawkeye series. And those were those were my jobs. Like anything good, all of the good moments with David Harbour, all the little like the conversations yeah. that they worked in, all of that stuff is an achievement. Like that, the, anyone is able, able to make a coherent film in this environment oh, is yeah. a a wonder. And I they all have my admiration because this is not. I know that they're they're very well compensated. I you know, but yeah, this is if you're trying to make something creative that like stays true to some central theme or makes the audience actually feel something. This is an impossible environment to to do that in. You're, you're just you're getting interference from every direction, from the merchandising mm-hmm. side to the TV side to everything, everything else. Yeah, there's definitely yeah. Again, we don't want to single anybody out. There's definitely people who like. Like I, I get continuously frustrated with um, who seem to show up, you know, like your J.J. Abramses, where they seem to show up in these disaster areas every time. Uh, uh, David S. Goyer is another one. That was one of the things I wrote here about Man of Steel, where David S. Goyer got obsessed with creating, like having the Krypton ship under ice in Man of Steel. Because he was like, I always thought that audiences thought it was weird that Krypton knew about Earth. And it was like, no, no one thinks that. Uh, But he created this whole convoluted thing where a Krypton ship was under ice that was researching Earth beforehand. And that's how Jor-El knew to send Superman to Earth. Because apparently, I I don't know, he he didn't realize that they could have telescopes. And it creates this whole big like answer to a question that nobody asked, which is a lot of this prequel stuff too. related to the off screen flaws. I wanted to point out that like the new star Wars does a lot of building relationships off screen too. Like this is, I don't think this is a pattern. This is mostly just that one movie. Like people have pointed out that Ray doesn't actually meet um, Poe until the end of the last Jedi. They barely interact in those films, but we are to assume that they're buddies by the end of the series. Um, C-3PO does that as well as he gets his memory erased and he says, I'm taking one last look at my friends. But the people he's looking at are like people he's maybe known for a few months, maybe. It's hard to tell what the timeline is with Star Wars. They resurrect an entire character off screen. There's a lot of this in the new Star Wars where we have to just assume people are friends because we're just told they're friends now. Yeah, or, or there's a case where I think when they meet, like when Ray meets Princess Leia, Princess Leia it's like treats Ray like a big deal, but totally disregards Chewbacca, who she yes. has known, who she has known for decades. Uh, there's because Ray's like Ray's the main character. Like like in in universe it doesn't make any sense those two would mean anything to each other, but it's like, well, that's Princess Leia, famous character from the franchise, and this is Ray, main character from this franchise. There you go. There's a lot of that. There's a lot of um like not not like I think the first one it's very unclear of like how famous anybody is, right? Um because what what is it? Does she recognize Han Solo in the first one? I'll have to go back and watch it. 
like the notoriety of the main characters yeah they're famous to us um it's very it's very much the benedict cumberbatch saying my name is khan dramatically uh where it's like none of the characters in the scene care that he's khan it's just that us the audience care you know yeah it's like who is that yeah <laughs> why have we met i don't understand <laughs> yeah it's like you know from the movie from from the wrath from of khan the, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah it's very much and again I, it, the, the new star wars movies have a lot of that basically turning to the camera and looking at the audience and it, it's yeah. moments that should be totally insignificant it's like the whole yeah the, when when han solo appears on screen like the whole movie stops for the audience to applaud but when you're watching it at home he just kind of stands, stands there, there for a few moments <laughs> it's, it's like in the editing bay they're like okay they're gonna go wild when he shows up on screen so let's just give this a moment to breathe like, let it let him just gaze upon him right <laughs> it's like okay I think we're describing like almost like a meta treatment of characters that goes. Yeah. That, that happens a lot. That, that happens a lot with the comic reliefs as well. Um, I, I don't like Chris Pratt for this reason. I feel like every movie he's in, he's half winking at the camera. Like, ha, can you believe it's me? Chris Pratt in another movie playing myself. And again, work great for guardians of the galaxy. Cause that's a meta. Like it, it's right. It's, it's a comedy, but you know, he's, He's just got this thing where he he doesn't fully like he won't let himself be in the movie. It's always like, isn't it funny that we're watching a movie with me in it? Right. And uh, I don't know. It bugs me. Uh, I'm sure it, he's an extremely nice guy. I don't I don't know him. Yeah, it bothers me especially when it's um, this is a big problem with Nicolas Cage movies. I think that new Pig movie that I believe we talked about where people go expecting it to be really funny. And it's like, no, it's just a movie with Nicolas Cage in it. Like, Nicolas Cage has accidentally created this fan base where people assume the movies he's in are going to be out of control. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes they're just not. Um, so, another thing on this list I definitely want to talk about, which is related to Star Wars, is, of course, the, the Chosen One character. Um, which, this has always been a thing, right? Um I think what it is to me is the way that in the eighties we had like every men, like every man action heroes. Um, and that was just a trope going around. I feel like this is like a current trope. Uh, whereas that a character is somehow special or chosen or faded or directly related. Uh, and it's unlike the every man trope. I think this like really hurts a lot of what makes these movies compelling um, mainly because it makes it so that uh, there's just, it's, it, it, it goes back to the um, having the characters flaws off screen. Like it's all tied in with the idea that we don't get enough flawed characters because they're always experts. They're always special. Chris Pratt's character in Jurassic world is like an expert at communicating with Raptors Um ready player one the main character is like this genius hacker who discovers the secret of driving backwards uh rampage the rock can only communicate is the only one to communicate with the monkey and so on and so forth where like our main characters are so not underdogs that they actually have exactly the skills needed for the movie we're about to watch uh and 
so many movies have translated this into your special, your chosen. Godzilla vs. Kong has multiple cases. Godzilla is the savior of mankind, and then a little girl shows up, and she's like the only one who can talk to Kong. Um, Avatar, Jake Sully is chosen. Game of Thrones has several chosen people. Uh, 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 the Dark Tower film turns it into like a special boy thing. Uh, it's one of those instincts that I think is really lazy because in the end of the day, it makes it so that they can just sort of explain away why something like why Ray can suddenly force heal, you know, uh, why she doesn't have to earn those things. It's because it's in, in her blood. And I get uh, that this is a storytelling tradition that goes way, way, way back and King Arthur and pulling yeah, the, the sword oh, for sure. Stone. Like I, I get it, but it has become a thing where I don't know that uh, like when you see in Harry Potter, like that is very transparent why that style of story appeals to children because it's like he is poor, he's bullied, his family hates him, and then he finds out at age 11 or whatever that he's destined for greatness. Like what little kid stuck in a small town or a boring suburb to, you know, getting bullied by their big brother doesn't dream of one day being rescued from that life and being told, no, you're a, you're a prince. Right. You're, you're a long lost prince or princess, or you've got magic in your body that will occur. Like you'll gain your powers at when you've reached a certain age and you're destined to do great things that you did not have to train for. Right. Like, like Ray practices for like 20 minutes in these movies to, to master everything from being a right. pilot to sword fighting, to using the force, to healing. She like one afternoon of practice gets her all that. And I get it. I get that's an old fantasy, but I think the the fantasy is always supposed to be you find out that you have these powers and then you immediately find out that you are saddled with the weight of doing something with them. So it's supposed right. to be this old morality tale that, you know, by virtue of being born into this world, you are obligated to, to help people or to use your abilities. And that's and so you should use your talents to work hard or whatever. Like it's I get why it's an ancient tale. It's just in a blockbuster they kind of misinterpret it where it just becomes like a way to make the main character awesome. Like yeah, just or super cool. Like it's. Or to sort of just, yeah, like uh, hand wave progress. Cause like, like you said, Ray barely trains in it. Um, what's remarkable to, remarkable to me is when, it uh, kind of undermines the theme. Did you see the new Space Jam? No. I, even uh, though I could literally just I, watch it right now, I have HBO Max. I, it yeah. would cost me nothing to watch it, and I still have not. I can't <laughs> make myself. I'm sorry. I'd, I'm not going to spoil the new Space Jam for you, um, if you're worried. But like the the main conflict is that LeBron's son uh, isn't good at basketball and doesn't want to do basketball. And is instead a computer whiz. And he has to grapple with the fact that his son doesn't want the same path as his. Luckily, his son's amazing at making video games. And that's one of those things that misses the point. Whereas the point should be, not everybody is a child whiz. You know, not everybody starts immediately knowing what they're going to do. But because they make it so that the son is really good at this other thing, it kind of misses the point. 
and that's similar to how what happened with Ray, which was like Ray started as like I'm just some person. Uh, Ryan Johnson very smartly like made it like he deflated the twist in um, I don't remember the name of that one. The middle, the middle of the new Star Wars. Uh, and then, of course, JJ comes in and goes, no, actually, you're a Palpatine. And it completely misses the point of like a hero can be anybody. Uh, and these movies, the Harry Potters and the, these now like they've like accidentally made it about like, no, a hero has to have a specific bloodline, which is such a weird message to send to kids. Um, and like you said, it's happened for a while. It's just I've never seen it happen so much as it does now where everybody has to be tied in. Like the Joker is Bruce Wayne's brother and Joker. And it's like, did we need that? You know, you could write probably an entire in-depth book about where society is when we favor the everyman versus where we favor the Superman, the, right. the with the person with the Superman blood and their, because even in, across the, the many diehard movies, the original, the entire point, was that he had no special skills at all. He was just a yeah. rugged cop who over the course of the movie gets more and more exhausted and more and more beaten down and more and more discouraged and he's bleeding out and he's filthy and but he perseveres. Like what's the only thing special about him is that he won't quit. And that was the whole Rocky thing. That by right. die hard five or whatever, he's jumping on the wing of a fighter jet and he, he's he becomes superhuman because they don't know how else to write that character? And the same mm-hmm. thing with Fast and Furious. It's like, you know, their only skill in the first movie is that they can drive really good. And so, like, okay, well, that's fun. Like, like how can you translate those skills into uh, an action movie so, so that the challenge comes down to being able to drive really good? And then by movie five, they're straight up superheroes. They are right. jumping off of planes and they are taking damage that would kill probably Spider-Man without a, a special suit. Like, and it doesn't matter. It's like, no, they, the only, we can't think of anything to do other than make them literal superhuman. I, I find that fascinating, but I don't know why other, other than you just get stuck in a rut of writing these. And so you sit down with your template and you say, okay, give me, give me a new franchise or give me something to, to adapt. And you go looking for, you know, like I, I understand that anything from like the YA, the young adult like stuff is going to have a lot of chosen one narratives. Again, that appeals to children, but it is right. Kind of a childish fantasy. Like the whole thing, I think of an adult movie being more about grownups, you know, having to use their skills to overcome things like yeah. the Mar- the Martian people love that. Cause it's a bunch of competent adults persevering and solving problems that nobody in that movie is magic it also gives the hero a chance to participate when they're an everyman who's forced to step up as opposed to a movie starting because someone tells the hero they're a hero someone shows up and says you need to do this stuff it takes away their agency in a weird way unless they find interesting ways to to deal with it i guess like uh, you know the matrix sequels aren't great (laughs) uh but one of the more interesting things they did was tell Neo, oh, you're not actually chosen. We chose you as part of the system. You're, you're, and um, the Hunger Games also pulls that, where the reveal is like that's the, you're the chosen one 
is a scam in a way. It's it's a way to continue a toxic system. Uh, so they have done that, but like most of the time, yeah, it it just sort of. Well, that's what I kind of love about Game of Thrones. Right. Is that there you have a bunch of competing people who all think they're the chosen one. Right. Because they're worshiping competing gods that are telling them you are the chosen one and they're all at war and they each think they are divinely, you know, there's like five different people who think they have been given special that they can't die because of, you know, like Stannis is shocked that he dies. He like can't believe it because he thought right. it was his destiny to own the kingdom because he had been told that in a prophecy. And it's like, no, it, it turns out in this universe, you're one of many people who all have that same delusion. And I think in the books, it's going to arrive at a place where it's going to turn out none of them were right. The, right. the TV show, we don't need to get off on that. Yeah, <laughs> we don't. But you're right. That is a really good way to do the chosen one trope. Um. It it definitely feels like, again, I think like the 80s, we did the Everman stuff. Like there's always, I think, like little fads with this. This just, like go, going back to how you were talking about how they're all kind of superheroes, I think that plays into it and that, that kind of leads us into our next problem, which I would say is one of the biggest problems that we're going to talk about, which is uh, not making it clear enough if the protagonist is in danger um, or kind of like just, I would say in general, like trivializing the dangers. Yes. Uh, and, and again, the, the Black Widow movie does this so much that you can just see it in the trailer. You don't have yeah. to have seen the movie. If you see the stuff she's surviving in the trailer and she's not even going to have like that. Um, obligatory little cut on the bridge of the nose. They'll give the hero sometimes like when they're doing the, when they're doing like facial wounds, but they still oh, want yeah. them to be sexy. They'll give Tom Cruise that little cut across the bridge of his nose and maybe like a little cut on his, his cheek. They don't even give her that. Like her hair isn't no. even messed up. Like she falls out of a floating city that crumbles to the ground. And it, and it's not, it's not that she survives again, the, the complaint, to be absolutely clear, the complaint is not that that movie is medically inaccurate as to what a human body can withstand. It's that they never establish what is what will kill her. Because I thought she, I didn't know she had superpowers. I thought she was just like a trained super assassin, but otherwise had a human body, and that if she got shot in the head, she would die. But she survives. <laughs> like there, there's a scene where she, we're supposed to be terrified for her dying in a car accident. And then you see her surviving stuff 10 times as violent, but right. no problem. Like, like it's casual, like it's almost glib. And again, we'll get into it in a future episode, like how these movies come together that like the units that shoot the action scenes and the director who shot the stuff that's actually where the actor is actually there are not the same people and they may not necessarily see each other's work until late in the process. Like there's a reason these movies feel like you're watching two different movies mashed together, the action scenes and the talking scenes. But like there, I never felt like she was in danger. No, because, well, I think what, what you're circling is um, movies can be anything um, as long as they're consistent. Like, you need rules. You need to know what the stakes are, and then the movie needs to keep uh, on that. One of the things that also happens in Black Widow is a giant sky base crashes into the ground, and it happens in, like, the background. Uh, 
Like they don't really care, which is really funny to me because in Age of Ultron, um, when we reviewed this, me and Tom, Tom pointed this out. Age of Ultron, that's literally the, the climax is we have to prevent this giant thing from crashing into the ground. And in this, it's just a thing that happens. Uh, it's, it's incidental. It just, yeah. Yeah. And it, and it's this feeling of like, I don't, I, it, you disconnect from it. Cause it's like, well, if you're not worried, then neither am I, you know, uh, this happened a lot in Jurassic world because in the original Jurassic parks, they spend a lot of time on how traumatizing the experiences are for the kids, especially. And in the Jurassic worlds, they like don't really care. They, there's a scene in Jurassic world where they get in that really dumb hamster ball and they, they go out, out the boundaries of the ride. They get attacked by the Indominus Rex who kicks them around in that ball um, they're smashed into trees. They're held upside down. Uh, they ultimately have to like fall out of the ball. They run, they have to run away from the Indominus Rex. They jump off a waterfall into the water as the thing almost gets them. And then they get out of the water and they're chuckling. They have a couple scrapes and they just keep continuing with the movie. Um, they're not even worried that the, the Rex is going to be like kill, like try to get them again. Uh, they just continue with the movie and you compare that with like the T-Rex in the first Jurassic Park where they're like the, the Lex is traumatized. They're covered in mud and scrapes. They're hiding in a, in a um, drainage pipe. Uh, Tim won't talk. They, they do the work to show like, yeah, this shit is serious. Um, which I feel like movies like they almost don't have time for anymore. Uh, and since Jurassic world takes place in the Jurassic park universe, it just feels inconsistent and weird. Later, a character is dies horribly while dinosaurs are swooping down, killing everybody. And Chris Pratt, uh, has a kiss kissing scene with the character, Claire. Like they just, there's no sense of like, are these people scared? Uh, should they be running? Are they in danger? Uh, and these are not supposed to be like superheroes, you know? Like Black Widow is at least a superhero, but like you, I kind of assumed she wasn't actually superpowered in any way. Does the movie does the movie explicitly say she's like a super soldier? I didn't think they injected her with yeah, like that's a super soldier serum, or they replaced her bones with that fictional metal from the X Men. I I, <laughs> I didn't think, but right, but it doesn't matter because it's. This was a scene that was shot on a green screen with wires. Like at best, her participation is like, okay, you're jumping off at this green box onto this green box, and then we are going to paint you in to have you two thousand feet in the air, jumping off of and exploding. It's like, okay, your her emotions are not accurately conveying what you would be feeling when that happens. Right. <laughs> why would it? Because the way the way the thing is made. But, you know, like you look at the first Jurassic Park, you can have a scene where it is one velociraptor in a kitchen. Right. Coming after these children and what the audience feels like that's so small and so compact. And what the audience feels is 10 times what they're going to feel in this huge scale CGI sequence of, well, first they get in a thing and then they fall down this volcano and the lava explodes around them. And they fall off a cliff into the ocean. They think that the bigness of it and the scale of it 
again, it makes for a good spectacle. And I guess it makes for a good shot for the trailer. And maybe they think it makes the movie sell better, you know, overseas in China because they think, well, they just like to see big stuff happening on screen. I personally think that's kind of insulting. I think yeah. watching a child be stalked through a kitchen by a dinosaur that you know for a fact that child cannot go hand to hand with. Like that thing, if it catches the kid, it's going to eat eat the kid horribly. Like what you feel in that moment is so much more and it's so much smaller because it's very clear what the danger is. It's very clear who's in danger. It's very clear what will happen if the kid is getting caught. Where to me, again, that's not a matter that's not a matter of personal preference or opinion. I think in your movie, if it's not clear what the danger is, then that's that's failing at basic storytelling. Mm-hmm. What happens, this person's trying to do X. What happens if they fail? This person is being pursued by this thing. What happens if they get caught? If you've not made that clear, then I you're never going to fully connect. And if you show the characters surviving massively improbable things, because it's just very easy to paint them in with CGI. And when I say easy, I mean people in several effects companies had to work 75,000 hours rendering it frame by frame. But from your, from their point of view, it's like very like for the characters, very easy for them to be on like the roof of a collapsing building and they just jump off. It's like, well, if they can survive that, what are you going to show me? That's going to make me feel tension. Like whatever right. I'm fun. I get from watching the fast and furious movies. It's definitely not any kind of fear that Dom is going to be injured or killed. He clearly cannot die. This is sort of why going back to the first thing we talked about undercutting stuff with jokes. I think it's why a lot of them feel that's necessary. Um, because the fast and furious movies are not the action doesn't matter. Right. And so what matters is charisma and whether or not they did something practically. I think that's it's something we'll talk about down the line. But one of the problems is that a lot of these movies have to escalate. Right. And the thing they don't understand is that CGI alone isn't impressive anymore. We're just not impressed by it. We need actual tension. Uh, we need actual danger. We need to know what the what the actual rules are. Uh, but because things have to get bigger and bigger for like stuff like the Fast and Furious, it makes them more and more superhuman until, yeah, there's no, I'm not, like, like it's hard to, like in Black Widow, after watching Black Widow, it's hard to imagine why she would have died falling off that cliff. Because it's like, surely she has a way to get out of that. She gets out of everything. We see that. So you have to conclude the only reason she dies is because the writers needed her to die. And it's one of those things that kind of takes you out of the movie. Or at least it does for me. In that Fast and Furious spinoff, Hobbs and Shaw, they just decided to make that the joke. Like the whole thing is that these are two unkillable characters and they keep joking about how easy the thing they're doing is. Right. Where it's like, see which of us can beat up this room full of bad guys the fastest. And they're like trash talking each other and i guess it's just the the pleasure from it is just watching the two of them kind of riff with each other but they establish very early in that movie oh there's nothing at stake here (laughs) there's yeah nothing bad is going to happen to either of these guys it's all just about watching these guys kind of spout their one-liners which i guess is 
fine if that's the movie yeah. you're making. But there's times when you're expecting. It's clear you're expecting me to feel something that you've not you've not earned. F nine is the same where there's literally a running joke where two of the characters say, isn't it weird how we can't die? We don't even get scratches on us. That is, that is literally a conversation in that movie. And it becomes this weird meta joke where they almost realize they're in a movie. Uh, and so it's, it's so it's jumping the shark stuff, you know, where it's like, there's, there's no longer anything any reason to watch this movie no one's gonna die uh everybody's gonna be fine uh they can go to space they can they can the rock can force a helicopter down with his bare hands so it's kind of all for the hype it's all for the like the meme of it all it feels like which over time it just doesn't make a memorable film uh you know there needs to be more I th- I think the Mission Impossible films, uh, they fail at a lot of things, but they at least make the action feel like there's stakes, where it's like, oh, he has to hold his breath. He could drown. Uh, here's here's what the rules are. Like, he still feels mortal in those movies, you know? Yeah, uh, and, and that's a unique situation, too, where you have the star with total control over all of it is also the guy doing the stunts and also the guy arranging all of those action scenes. Like, that's where right. you have Tom Cruise and... Like, the screenwriter, everybody works for Tom Cruise. And whatever else bad things you can say about Tom Cruise, like, he is, he very much knows how to shoot action, how to stage action, how to build tension. He knows the mechanics of yeah. action will be to the point that he's given up trying to be, like, a serious actor and is now just Mission Impossible guy full-time, right. which is fine. Uh, like, he's probably capable of, of more, but... It's that rare. It's the same thing. Like we could keep using Fury Road as a positive example for a lot of stuff here, like the way it builds oh, character yeah. quickly. But that's the rebuttal. Would be okay. That was one guy's passion project for literally twenty five years. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that who lived and breathed that universe and, and, and nursed us along and tried to did, did so much to try to get it made. And and it's like such a unique circumstance where Marvel and Disney is an assembly line. They know yeah. it. It's not. That's not a criticism. That's. It's like our job is to turn out product on a schedule. That's that. Like any human connection you get out of these, any genuine great moments, that is a credit to the actors. That is a credit to people that are able to do that stuff despite the process. Yeah. But the process does not lend itself to that. It's like we've got to have. We're making like three movies a year. No, we're not. There's no room for for passion projects in here. Right. We're implying. We're we're definitely talking about a lot of stuff that's results based, where they want something, the end product, and they have to work backwards to get it. And I do think that plays into a lot of this because what with the with the danger stuff, it's like it mostly whenever it fails, it feels like it's because the screenwriter said so. That's what it always comes down to to me. Um, the flip side being the new Loki show, where people have pointed out he's like weirdly weak in that show even though he was a god in the avengers and he was taking on like the hulk and thor uh and the reason why he's that way is because well he's the protagonist now we need him to be the underdog therefore we're gonna make him weaker uh and it it goes back to this world isn't consistent anymore i don't trust the i don't trust the movie with the stakes 
because I feel like anything that happens doesn't matter if the writers don't want it to matter. They can just write a reason. Same way Ray can just force heal all of a sudden and levitate, but only levitate when they want her to. He can't, she can't levitate to get them out of quicksand later in the movie, but she can levitate in some scenes. And it's this inconsistency where it short circuits your brain and yeah, danger doesn't matter anymore. And then you've just disconnected completely from the movie. Uh, yeah. And this is something, uh, you know, it, like I, to me, it's never clear watching the Marvel movies, how, what exactly the incredible Hulk can and cannot do. Oh, like, yeah. is he, is he immortal? Is, can anything kill him? I, I literally have no idea. And then Thor Ragnarok, you know, that's a great comedy. My least favorite scene is when they laboriously have him fight Thor. And I know it's just, it's there to be slapstick. Like the joke is that, but these two can't even, do they even feel it when they punch each other? Like, do right. they feel pain? Cause they're, they, they can't die. Like the, like the, and the Hulk's not going to like put him in the hospital. So it's like this moment when he's being forced to fight the Hulk but it's just pure slapstick comedy. Like these two can't hurt each other, but you get a version of that in a lot of movies. It's like, well, what, what actually would happen if this, you know, if he does this, what, what kills in Batman versus Superman, when, when uh, Superman unleashes his heat ray on Batman and Batman like raises his forearm and blocks it. Right. It's like, Oh, is that, <laughs> oh, I didn't know he could do that. Okay. I, I thought that heat ray could like cut the earth in half. Yeah. I didn't know you could just block it with like your forearm armor. But in that scene, it's like, well, it just makes for the cool scene. So in that moment, his heat vision is just this weak little beam that you can block with your, your forearm. It won't even heat up your forearm too much that you have to bandage it later. But in another time, if he needs to, he could slice right through a mountain. It's like just whatever yep. the whatever the scene needs, apparently. But that's rough because, again, later on, if they're in danger in a situation where that ability he showed earlier would come in awfully handy right now, then I'm just sitting there waiting for him to do that thing. You've not. I can't feel tension because you've not made it clear how much danger he's in. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely want to dig into this one more is – the idea of not giving the protagonist a personal reason to be involved with the plot. Um, we sort of brushed on this um, with the chosen one idea, too, which is that the protagonist is involved just because they're told so. Uh, right. Um, but I, the most like one of the an example where I feel like it kills the movie is Tenet. Uh, right where the protagonist and again i get it i get that there's a twist spoiler where it turns out that he was hired by himself in the future right he's but the special boy for 90 percent of the movie he's just being swept along into this plot like he has no stakes whatsoever and it's like well yeah but they they said it's the end of the world that's not personal stakes that's boring that's abstract like telling you you need to come do this because the world we're in because there's a time a time bomb a time-based bomb that's going to go off and kill time or whatever the hell it was and then <laughs> he goes off on this fetch quest and it's like well yeah but you know like like james bond doesn't have a personal stake in his adventures but that's not 
true. Like he gets the mission and then he gets involved and very quickly he like meets a woman or very quickly like it becomes personal between him and the villain. Like that's his job is to try to, you know, here's a clear objective there. There's a bomb and this guy is going to take it to his secret volcano base and you've got to stop it before it's too late. And they do a very good job of like, you know, he's in it because he's in it. That's his job. He's a, he's a member of the MI6 or whatever. And Tenet, he just keeps, people just keep telling him, okay, this is what we're doing now. And because of this twist, they have to obscure why, but at no point is there any like forward momentum where the main character wants something. And right. so you, as the audience, want the thing they're wanting. It's just a series of co- of conversations he's having to unspecified ends. It's very weird, and it makes it very unsatisfying. Like, people complain that the movie is confusing, but you wouldn't notice it's confusing if you were engaged in what the character wanted and was trying to do in that moment. You would just be following that character. But it's confusing because you have time to sit back and say, well, well how does this work? And the reason you do is because you're not engaged in like this guy's like you don't know anything about this guy, what his personality's like, anything. I think Nolan is a is gets worse and worse at this because like I'm reminded of Inception, where in Inception it's to get his daughter back, right? But you completely forget about that for most of the movie because it doesn't matter ultimately. Like he wants to get back to America to see his daughter. And then someone says, oh, I can do that. Uh, work for me. And then that's it. That's the movie. Um, Tenet is extremely bad, though, because it really does feel like the the character at no... Like, it's it's a straight-up confu- Like, the confusing thing about Tenet isn't the time travel. It's trying to understand why anybody's doing what they're doing. Yes. Because they don't explain any of that. Uh yeah, I think a lot of this comes out in, um, like, whenever, like, people are recruited for a really dumb reason or the villain, it turns out, oh, the villain was doing it the whole time, where, like, if you backtrack, you realize it's all nonsense. The uh, the Suicide Squad, the first Suicide Squad, they do the thing where they recruit them all and they're like, you know, the world is different. There's superheroes now. We need to combat that. So their plan is apparently to get, like, Harley Quinn with a baseball bat to do that. Yeah, just and a like, mentally ill woman with a baseball yeah. bat. That's her superpower. She yeah, has a and, mental illness and a baseball bat. And then the villain is created by them because they recruit a woman who ends up getting possessed and like they cause the problem they have to solve in the movie. And by the time the, the death settles, you realize like, wait, if they had just not done anything, it would have been fine. Nothing. None of this would have happened, uh, and it, it it's just. I think it's it's the top down stuff where they're like, well, we need these characters, we need this to happen, uh, so they don't start in the basic idea of like why why, <laughs> just why like uh, the Tomorrow War, like that the whole basis of the Tomorrow War is we're going back in time to recruit people to fight in the future, uh, t- and it's like why don't you prevent the war now. Like, why don't you go back in time and try to prevent the war? They don't even think to do that. And in the end, the movie, most of the movie turns out to be a completely um, useless deviation. Where at the end of the day, the the solution, spoilers for Tomorrow World, is, oh, let's just go back in time and fight the aliens then. 
but it never occurs to them because if it did, the movie wouldn't happen. So what they're what like when you start digging into their what why their characters are doing anything, it's just chaos. Uh, I think this also goes for villains too. The the villain in Black Widow, maybe I missed something, but um, the guy who runs the like super soldier soldier brainwashing program, I have no idea why he's doing that. Which, like, if if the wor- if it's just world domination, that feels really basic for a Marvel plot because Marvel tends to be very good about this, about like why villains want things. Uh, Black Widow felt really lazy to me. Yeah, there but, has to be motivation. It's on an emotional level. That's the whole yeah. thing. It doesn't have to logically make sense. That's not even necessarily what we're saying. But like Tenet, I would have liked better if instead of the whole plot of, oh, the future is trying to destroy the past with this MacGuffin that I actually forgot about until we were pre- prepping for this podcast. There, oh, yeah, like, they the, have what to- do they call it? I don't know. It's it's it's, it's like Horcruxes, right? Like yeah, you have to you, put yeah. You put them together, and then somehow it'll destroy the universe. If they had changed it so that it's like he, like let's say hypothetically, I'm not going to rewrite Tenet on on the podcast because we're already an hour and a half into this. But like let's say <laughs> hypothetically, like this guy stumbles across some weirdos moving backward in time who try to kill a child, and he he like saved the child. Right, and then so he's like, and he finds out somebody's like, oh, she's going to grow up to be like the CEO, and they're trying to kill her in the past because it's a rival company or whatever. And now his job is not to save the universe; is just to protect that child from these using time shenanigans against people moving backward and forward in time. And then just like let that be your movie is just just this one person. He's just trying to save this one person. And then that's it. Like that to me works better than this abstract, so high concept that it becomes like, you know, antiseptic or whatever. Like like it's very sterile. It's it's very broad because like, well, it's going to destroy the universe. Like that just doesn't mean anything. I'm sorry. It doesn't. It's you've heard that a billion times in movies. It, It doesn't hit the audience emotionally. Like they're not literally sitting there thinking, wow, all of the people in the world could die it's just it's just a phrase somebody says saving the world it just right. washes over you so but yeah a surprising number of movies make this mistake and this is one of those things that you learn in like middle school creative writing class that mm-hmm. i think because of the for some reason about the way there like i think with tenet he just started with the concept instead of starting with writing the story beginning, middle and end. He's starting with the concept and it's like, how how do we unveil this concept to the audience? And so you just never, you never got to that last part. And I think in that case, I think inception was written with his brother. Is it Jonathan Nolan who writes? And I think think he wrote himself because it's like his passion project, but it has, it's like the most Chris Nolan movie because he didn't have anybody else stopping him. Right. And you can tell, because, like, I'm working on a, a script with some producers, and one of the questions they do ask is they're like, well, why is the character doing this? We want to know why the character's doing this. It is something that people care about in the process, but if you have someone who doesn't have to answer to anybody, it's it's just funny the things that might get forgotten. And in the case of Tenant, it's, yeah, the very basic element of why is this person choosing to do this? Uh, the same thing happens with... Um, 
Robert Pattinson's character, who literally just start shows up and just is helping him. And you don't know who he is. You don't know why. And again, the nature of the twist, they're trying to like cover that up because it's part of the twist. But in the time, in the moment, you're like, I need, I need a reason. I need to know why they're, because it really feels like they're doing it because the movie decided they need to do it. Especially the way Robert Pattinson plays the character where he feels no emotion about anything they're doing whatsoever at any point. Yeah. He feels no strong anger or fear or he's just this very casual, super cool, competent. And again, why, what's in it for him? Why does he care? What's, you know, uh, in Die Hard, John McClane's trying to save his his ex-wife who he's still in love with. Right. Like it's, you know, and he's, you see him be scared. You see him be. Bitch, and again, if if I if we had Chris Nolan on this podcast, maybe we'll get him for the next episode. Yeah, um, he would say, "Okay, that car chase where one of the cars is going backward in time, and the other one's like that took three years to shoot and pre-visualize and everything else." Like, yeah, this this one last little bit of the script got neglected because we put ninety nine point nine five percent of our energy into this incredible reverse time car chase sequence. It's like, yeah, but the problem is <laughs> yeah. when we got yeah. to that scene, I had no idea what was happening or why they were doing what they were doing. It was cool. A lot of cool stuff going on up there. But in terms of what I wanted to happen and what the consequences were going to be if this scene played out differently, I had no idea. And so I felt mm-hmm. nothing. I was just watching a cool thing happen. And yeah. I forgot about it as soon as I turned the movie off. Right, if you don't remember what's actually at stake. Die Hard, you mentioned, is a good um, uh, progression because in like the first two Die Hards, it's, oh, wrong place, wrong time. The third one, someone seeks him out, so he's essentially held hostage. And then if you remember the fourth one, I believe he just involves himself. Like he just says, hey, what's going on here? And gets involved uh, and you could argue makes the situation worse. And I think that's a new thing that happens in a lot of movies now where like when you go back and you look at it, you're like, wait, they made that decision to get involved. Uh, They didn't actually have to, Um, which sometimes that works again when, when it's like someone has to John McClane makes the decision to get involved in the first ones too. But that's because he's like, someone has to do something versus there's like someone hacked the country and they're holding people hostage and he goes out of his way to kind of just like make the situation worse. Uh, yeah, it, it, man, I'm trying to think of other examples of this, but the only one I can think of is speed Two, which isn't a new film <laughs> or a film. Anybody cares about, you know, I, I think it's something that happens more now because you have a case of like, well, why was this movie made? And it's because, well, there there needs to be another movie with these people in it. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> uh, so, it, like, ten, I get it. it. It was he was focused on you know the the concept instead of like telling telling the story, or else he forgot that step. But otherwise, if you've got a case where we have to make infinite stories with these people. Uh, it gets increasingly implausible. Why? Like you can, you know, I love the John wick movies, but it does through now three movies getting increasingly 
like why they can't just leave him be. Like, I guess right. it seems like there'd be a point they would prefer he just retire. Yeah, and it's also <laughs> they, they have to think poking that of hornet's like, nest again and again. Yeah, um, they have to think of weird reasons. Yeah, you're right. Is they just keep bothering him, and it's like the first one works really well because they're almost subverting it, where it's like they killed his puppy. That's all we need, you know, to see him get involved. And then after that, it's these weird like assassin coins and blood packs and stuff and it's like all right settle down and they are Um, they're working off of a theme that they because it's they kill his puppy and then he you realize as you watch the movie that he put the bad guys in power so it's like he's actually confronting his own sins because he's it's explained he has his assassinations are why these people are in charge and he's realizing i have to go back and and undo this. So like the theme of his past coming back to get him, they do that very well. That's a really good script, by the way, the first John Wick movie. Oh yeah. Uh, that's like, that's like a top notch action script, but it's a great example of, yeah, the, it, they're almost making a joke about how easy this is that they, they killed his dog. The dog was the last gift from his, his ex-wife who's just died. And you have brought him back to the old, the old him. He's not a chosen one. Yeah. Uh, he he is ashamed of what he is and how good he is at shooting people. But you, you you know, he realizes, oh, I have to I have to undo this. Um, but yeah, it's and you could say someone could say, well, Fury Road, like Mad Max, doesn't have a reason to be involved. But Mad Max is not the protagonist of that movie, right? That, that's, also, uh, he he starts by just needing he he gets thrown into it too. He's the blood bag, like. And then it becomes a situation of desperation where he just doesn't have anything else to do but be involved. So they still they still answer it. But you're right. He isn't the protagonist. The protagonist in that makes a very clear choice. Uh, and she has a very clear motivation. Yes. And yeah. it is spelled out extremely clearly why she's doing what she's doing, where she's trying to get to, step by step. The, yep. everything about what she's trying to do, what the bad guy's trying to do, why the bad guys are doing what they're doing, their motivation. It's all crystal clear. That's That makes that movie as great as any of the stunts. The stunts yep. pay off because you know exactly why every single person is doing what they're doing. Right. The death, death matters in it. Um, they don't undermine the scenes with humor. They, they pretty much avoid all the things we're talking about. Um it's it's very clear the world we're in, uh, what everybody wants. Uh, that that movie's going to come up a lot, I think, as like, oh yeah, this this is the movie that avoids all the things we're talking about. Um, I have one final thing I want to note. That I don't I don't know if this is a trend. It's just something that I've noticed that's really bugging me, and I think I know why it's happening, which is movie series kind of collecting characters. With every new film, the Fantastic uh, Beasts series is so crowded you can't even keep track of who all these yeah. people are. There are so many characters. Here's what I think is happening, um, because the ones that really pop out for me are Jurassic World, Star Wars, and Godzilla versus Kong. Uh, Jurassic World has like a bunch of funny sidekicks in the first one. And then they just add a bunch more funny sidekicks in the second one. Godzilla versus Kong. By the time we get to that movie, there are like 20 characters. And most of them don't matter to the point that they have to like force re- things for them to do. Uh, Millie Bobby Brown's character, for example, 
doesn't do anything the entire film and has to like travel to Tokyo. And at one point a person she's with like throws water on a computer that briefly short circuits Mechagodzilla in one second so that they can get like a punch in. And that's all they do. Uh, Rebecca Hall and Alexander Skarsgård literally have the same motivations throughout the movie. Uh, They could be, they're in all the same scenes together. You could literally just like, just like the T-1000 push them together into one character. And I think it's because these movies, they keep changing directors and not planning where they're going so that they feel obligated to hold on to the characters they already had while introducing new characters for new ideas that they have that doesn't fit with those characters. So what happens is like a bunch of arcs and characters get started and not finished. Um, Obviously what's her name? Rose in star Wars where like Ryan Johnson brought her in for the last Jedi. And then she's just a background character in rise of Skywalker because they're just, they, they, they start these threads and they keep losing it. And the result is by the end by star Wars. Once again, there's like 20 characters. And at, when they win, they're all like celebrating and it's like, Oh, I haven't seen you in ages. Um, on top of the obligation that Jurassic world and star Wars has to bring in the old characters, whether or not they even have a function like Lando and the, uh, newest star Wars, uh, so what the result is just these unfocused, extremely overcrowded movies uh, where not a single person really gets enough screen time to matter. And part of that is the process of if you're making a franchise where the the goal is to make infinite movies in this franchise. Yeah. Like if you watch an, uh, a TV show with an ensemble cast – you'll clearly even a great show like Mad Men or something like that, but where there's a lot of characters, you know, there's a dozen recurring characters you will see in the course of a season, like, Oh, they, they invented something for this person to do. Like like they, because they're on contract, you're paying that actor. Right. So you can see them like, even with that schedule, it's like, we're doing 13 episodes this year, but you know, we're kind of sidelining Sally. So let's, let's give Sally a subplot where she meets and, and you watch it's kind of, well, what was that about? Like that didn't result in anything, but you know, that's where the writers, they have to consider we're paying this person <laughs> and they have to be in the show. Well, when you're doing a, 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 you know, a Godzilla, big monster universe. And I literally, with a gun to my head, I could not tell you how many movies they're actually into <laughs> this. Like what the There's- one that just came out, was that the fourth? Okay, so Godzilla, then there was um, Kong Skull Island, there's Godzilla King of the Monsters, so yeah, I think this is four. Okay, and so you've got, you're just hiring people because you want to be able to use them, and you figure you're going to need them at some point, but as with a TV show, it's very possible you come up with, you pound out your script for that next movie, and it's like, well, we don't have anything for Millie to do but she has to be in the movie. So like she's she's con- like they signed you to right. a contract for like seven movies, and she's got to be in it. So now you, the poor screenwriter, who I cannot imagine, is like, okay, we need another draft where you've got to like we thought we didn't have her for this, but that we actually are going to have her. So give her something to do. 
So you're sitting yes. there and thinking, well, Jesus Christ, I've got to give her a subplot. And remember, the subplot has to intersect with the main plot. It can't be, the subplot cannot be, she you know, went to Las Vegas and lost a bunch of money. It's got to... It's got to have something to intersect with the, the the climax somehow, and so you're just thinking, well, maybe she's with them, and they like accidentally break the computer, and that stops Mecha Godzilla long enough for for King Kong to punch him or something. It's like so yeah. weak, but you can see it. And same thing, the last like the way they treat Finn is criminal, where he's just running around oh, shouting God, yeah. Ray's name over and over again. It's like they had no idea what to do with that character, and where. Like Rose was, you know, elevated to be like this another key figure. And the entire point is that she's not super powered. She's not a Jedi. She's just someone who has a strong sense of duty and cares. And, you know, she's not an ace pilot. She's just an, a, a regular person. In the third movie, it's like, I'm going to stay behind while you go. Right. I'll be here watching the fort in case you, you need something. And like they had, they had no idea what to do with her. And so you get this almost insulting treatment where she's there but it's because she's under contract and you can put her on the poster or whatever uh but i don't think they make an action figure and i think yeah that's another thing where it's like if we were making a movie you're sitting now with a script like that's something you've done in scripts before i do not doubt in your time writing movies you've consolidated characters where you've said oh these these two guys have got to be just one guy like i'm getting all these so and same thing you look at star wars prequels there's no reason in the first movie that qui-gon and obi-wan had to be two different people they they serve the same purpose in the plot there's just two of them like you just you can combine those personality traits into one guy Uh, and you you'll see this in any badly written movie when it's overcrowded that's a sign that it needed another draft but again these movies are not written this movie was you know kong kong versus godzilla it was a series of monster fight scenes and then somebody had to cobble together some other connective tissue for this stuff that they were already rendering in in the the in the 12 effect studios that they were going to bankrupt in the course of making the movie (laughs) they were already two years into their work when you sat down to write what does millie bobby brown do in this movie right it definitely feels like draft draft one issues and the new star wars for example they introduce in the third one that like bounty hunter that's like pose x uh who shows up for one scene to give them information and it's like why not i don't know find a way to make that something rose does use it's 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 like it's like that idea of like you have plenty of food in your fridge why are you ordering more (laughs) where it's like use the characters you already have and use them in an efficient way to project the to make the plot go forward but maybe there was an executive who was like we have this idea for a character she's like a lady bounty hunter she has a cool mask can you cram her in there too or they uh, want another action figure yeah that's an action figure or they even had a mandate like we we want another woman but we definitely don't want rose because the, the fans decide they hate her so give us right a, a woman who can be an action figure so her face will be covered and you won't know if it's a woman or not in the action figure or whatever right it's I, who knows but but it's definitely There's, not it's not one person at a typewriter typing up their thoughts it's yeah. it's a mandate from you know every think, everyone listening to this has probably worked for a giant company at one point or another well that's that's these movies you're you're part yeah. of a giant corporation making a thing and there's these weird plans from up high i think like a lot of this is also they planned for cinematic universes. You know, at one point they're like, we're going to do a Star Wars every year. So adding characters, they're like, yeah, fuck it. You know, we can give them their own movies or something. But if it falls apart, 
then they have to just cram them all in one movie. Um, I think a lot of it is world building, the Conjuring films. Conjuring 2 has like six bad guys because they're trying to spin them all off into their own films. But that film itself is a mess because it's like, okay, so there's Annabelle and the nun and the crooked man and, and the, the main demon. And it's just, they, they're, they're trying, they're focused so on like what this is going to be that they forget to make the current movie good. Yeah. And God, the, the obvious problem with having an overcrowded movie, you're not giving enough time to develop any one of them. Into yeah. something interesting that's all like yeah. it's it's just a, like I, I use the term mechanical problem like it's a physical problem that you're no, you do not have enough pages and minutes available to make any one of them interesting right um geez did we is this it did we get through it all yes we got through the first of our four planned episodes <laughs> <laughs> on this series oh we're we're coming up on two hours Someone should animate our voices as, I don't know, rabbits. Uh, and then it just be, then a, that's a movie is my point. <laughs> then we've made a movie. We can, we can put this on IMDb. That's how that works, right? <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, any other thoughts? Any, anything else you want to say about, about no, uh, no. this aspect? Let's, we have, no, we have anything I could possibly think of, <laughs> I will mention in a future, future episode, because we're going to okay. come back to story structure next time, and that gets into a lot of things that tie into a lot of what we complained about here. Well, let's, let's wrap this up. Jason, thank you so much, first of all, for doing this. Uh, you didn't have to do this. This was your idea. Uh, I, I'm forever thankful. Um, do you have anything that you want to tell people? Do you want to plug? Two things. As always, the most recent novel is called Zoe Punches the Future in the Dick. Uh, it is available in hardcover now or an ebook will be available in paperback this fall. Also, I started a Substack newsletter, jasonpargin.substack.com. If you don't know what that is, it's just a blog where they will send the blog post to your email inbox if you want. Or you can just read them on the site. It doesn't matter. But yeah. some people, I guess, people prefer to browse the internet from their email inboxes now. I don't like to do that. I, I But this is where the audience has gone. They're telling me. That's wild because that feels like a step backwards. Like I remember yes. when the internet was just email. But when Facebook choked off the ability to distribute to your audiences, yeah. the the inbox became the new Facebook. Right. Don't get me that's started wild. on that. We don't have another two hours for me to get <laughs> mad at Facebook again. All right. That's fair. That's fair. Um, well, I, I, I better plug um, our, our Patreon, patreon.com slash gamefully unemployed. Uh, if you go on there, you can find exclusive podcasts like Tom and Jeff Watch Batman and Fox Mulder's a Maniac in our new series, Star Trek The Next Futurama. Uh, yeah, we watch movies every Friday night with our patrons. Uh, there's a lot going on on there. So just go check it out. And uh, I think I think that's it. I think we can rest until next time. Do we have a sign off? Do we have a zany sign off? Uh, we'll come up with one by like the third episode of this. We'll have we'll come up with a catchphrase, but I don't have one yet. Okay, we'll work on it. Sorry, everyone. Uh, bye. <laughs>